Daniel chapter 1. <clears throat> We're going to read the entire first chapter, so uh, bear with me here. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, used without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. And therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink, and then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in the matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh. That's a good thing back then, by the way. They're fatter in flesh than... Uh, I lost my place. Those who ate the king's food, so the steward took away their food and the wine, and they were and their drink, that they were to drink, and gave them vegetables. As for these four youth, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them among all, and none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of the king of Cyrus. Father, we uh, thank you for the, the amazing things that you did through Daniel and through his three friends. Father, we thank you that we see from this book that no matter how difficult no matter how, how trying, no matter how, how opposed people are to us, but Lord, in every situation, you can enable us to stand strong for you. Father, I, I know that there may be people right here this morning who, who are trying to live their Christian life out in a pretty difficult environment. And I pray that this would be an encouragement to them, that they might see what you did through Daniel, and his friends, and that they might be encouraged to trust you and to make godly resolves. Father, I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. About 15 years ago, I made uh, a baptism visit to a home. It was not very long after I had uh, begun pastoring at Lincoln Avenue, and we had a teenager. I think he was like a junior high age boy, probably about the age of Daniel. 
who made a decision for Christ in our student ministry. And I had talked to him and I felt that his decision was genuine, that he really wanted to follow Christ. And so I went to talk to his family. That's kind of our, our tradition here. We try to involve the families in those things. And so I got his address and I went to his house and I knocked on the door and they, they, came, they let me in. I think the, the wife let me in. And I sat down there in their living room. Now, now, right away, it was it was kind of a difficult house to be in. The kind of the place was a little bit in shambles. Um, it didn't smell very good. Um, it, it was kind of in disarray. Uh, they had a huge TV. Uh, to me, it was a huge TV, and it was on at full volume. And it it had a um, a bad movie on it. It was um, borderline, probably pornographic. And uh, they didn't shut off the TV, which I thought was interesting. They did not shut off the TV the whole time I was there. They left it at full volume. And the dad never looked at me once. Never looked at me once. And so I kind of had uh, my back kind of turned to the TV. I was looking at the, at the father kind of addressing him. I thought that was appropriate. And, and I went on to, to talk about what the son had done, that he had you know, seen the glory of Jesus. He'd seen who Christ was and what Christ did for him. And he went, put his faith in Christ. And um, you know, he wanted to be baptized. And I was just coming to let them know kind of what he had done and see what they thought about uh, him possibly being baptized. And if I remember right, the mother interacted a little bit with me. I don't believe the dad ever said anything. To, I don't. I know he never looked at me. He did say so. He said at the end of kind of my conversation there, he said something like, "Well, I hope it helps him because he's kind of a worthless, you know, slow or whatever to be in." I mean, he said that of his son. And I remember leaving there. I, re- I remember this as clear as, as like it was yesterday. I remember leaving there thinking that would be a hard place to live my, the Christian life. And I, I just begin to think about my kids, you know, and, and they, they hopefully have grown up in an environment where it's very easy to live the Christian life, you know, where there's people encouraging them and, and praying for them and teaching them to pray and, and urging them to go and, and be involved with the people of God and, and encouraging and celebrating their victories in the Christian life. And, and, and what I realize is that not everybody has that situation. In fact, there are some situations in which it is very difficult to live the Christian life. There are some families, there are some marriages in which which one spouse is a Christian and another is not. And it's very difficult to live the Christian life. There are some workplaces. Some of you guys have shared with me that it is a hard thing to live the Christian life in your location, at your rig or at your office or at your yard. And there are some students who have told me, man, in my class, in my high school, in my junior high, in my college, it is a difficult thing to live the Christian life. There are lots of opposition against me in trying to live out my faith. And what I want to encourage you with today is that the book of Daniel is a beautiful picture of four guys who get thrust into the worst imaginable situation of living out their their Christian life and God enables them in miraculous ways to live for the glory of God and does incredible things through them. Let me tell you a little bit about the context in which Daniel is living out his Christian life, okay? Israel, let me give you a little background of the book of Daniel. Israel had blown it for a couple hundred years, okay? Actually, more like three or four hundred years. They, they were separated into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And they kept, they kept 
turning to idolatry. They kept rebelling against God. They kept turning away from his word. And God would send discipline and God would send punishment. And God would send um, the prophets to call them back time and time again. And Israel would have little mini revivals. And then they would get sucked right back into the same things over and over again. And in 721 BC, God says, enough to the northern kingdom. And the Assyrians come in and wipe it out. And then in 586 BC is what we see happening in the book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians come in and they destroy Israel. They, 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 they destroy the city. They, they, they tear down the temple. They take the things in the temple and they take them to Babylon. They take the sacred things back to Babylon and they begin an, exporta- uh, an exportation of the people. They, they, they take them into exile. Daniel is in the first wave of this. He, he's among these youths who are, who are gifted and smart and talented and good looking and healthy. And Nebuchadnezzar takes them first and he puts them into his own service. And then there would be waves of exile and there would be waves of killing and execution until Jerusalem was completely devastated. That, that, that is what's happening in the book of Daniel. Now, let me tell you a couple things about Babylon. For the rest of the Bible, God will use Babylon, this, the writers of the scripture will use Babylon as a metaphor for wickedness. If you remember reading in 1 Peter and 2 Peter, Peter uses Babylon as kind of a metaphor of a wicked place. In the book of Revelation, you hear the city of Babylon used over and over as, as a metaphor for wickedness. This was a brutal nation. Okay, let me, let me tell you a little bit about the brutality. You read about this King Jehoiakim. Let me tell you how, how Jehoiakim's life ends. He rebels against Babylon. He kind of tries to mount a, a, an alliance with Egypt to take back the city. Okay, and he loses. Nebuchadnezzar wins. And he is fleeing the city with his family when they catch him in the plains of Jericho. They bring him back to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar lines up all of his sons in front of him and makes him watch as one by one he executes his children. And then, he, then Nebuchadnezzar gouges out Jehoiakim's eyes. So that the last thing the guy ever sees is the execution of his children. And then he drags him to Babylon and makes him live with that memory for the rest of his life. That's Daniel's boss. Okay? That's who Daniel is coming in to serve. All right? That's the environment in which Daniel and his friends are having to live out their Christian life. Let me give you some factors here that I think make Daniel's situation incredibly difficult. Number one, he's young. Okay, you know, If you'll notice there in verse 4, the, these guys are described as youths. They were probably 12, 13, 14, 15 years old. Uh, my son just turned 14, so they're probably Haddon's age, okay? So these guys are, are thrust into having to make these decisions, okay, as, as really junior high boys, okay? Number two, they are away from their family, their culture, their nation, and, and really all religious implications of the God of Israel, all right? They're taken out of that. I mean, can you imagine being taken out of your church, taken out of your family, taken out of your culture, and taken to a place where there is nobody else who worships the true God? That, that's, that's where Daniel and his three friends are taken. These guys experience tragedy and disappointment. You know, you know what I've found? What I've found is that the more tragedy and disappointment in your life, the harder it is to hold on to your convictions, isn't it? I mean, the more difficult your life is when you're just getting pummeled by, by hard things over and over again. It, it, it's even harder to live out your Christian life, right? These guys have lost their families, you know, it's, it's a very real possibility that their parents were executed. If they weren't executed, it's not like they're back at home and they can have good memories of dad running the, the, the law firm or the car dealership or the chariot dealership or whatever. No, they know their parents have been thrust into exile as well and maybe killed. 
And so they've had this experience of tragedy and disappointment. They are being brainwashed. You know, we always worry about our kids when they go off to college. You know why? Because they're young, because they're, they're moved out of their environment, the spiritual environment they've been in, and put in a new environment that may be hostile Christianity. Okay, there is, a, there is a, an intentional effort to re-educate and rename and change the identity of these guys. You, you, you know, the, the clearest picture of that is verse 7. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belshazzar. Why did he change their names? You know why? Because Daniel ends in the letters E-L. L, okay? Okay, if you take that into Hebrew, it's, it's the name of God. Okay, so Daniel has a name that reminds him every day that his name is Daniel. It reminds him that he's connected to the God of Israel. They change that name and they call him Belshazzar, which, which is connected to the, to, the, to the pagan culture of the Babylonians. So in every way, these guys are, are, are being educated. Notice there's a three-year education in which they must learn the, the language and the customs and the, and the literature of the Chaldeans. They're, they're being brainwashed, re-educated into a pagan environment. Their identity is being struck at, which is a huge thing. For your identity, have you noticed in the New Testament, every New Testament book almost opens, all the New Testament letters open with this description of who we are as believers. You know, Paul will open up Ephesians 1 by saying, hey, you guys are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. You're, you're forgiven and you're redeemed and you're, you're filled with the Holy Spirit and you're predestined and chosen and, 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 and all of these incredible things that make up who we are. Because who you are affects how you live. And so Daniel is being, is being brainwashed for three years trying to change his identity, trying to, trying to reshape them so that they, so they, don't, they don't think of themselves as Hebrews, as children of God anymore, but they think of themselves as Babylonians. Fifthly, there's a real risk or harm, even death, if these guys don't let go of their convictions. How do I know that? Well, we know what happened to Jehoiakim's sons. And we know that when Daniel, when Daniel makes some strong commitments here, if you'll notice in verse um, 10, the chief of the eunuch says to Daniel, look, man, for you to do this, you risk my life. All right? So obviously, obviously, these guys are taking their life in their hands. How much of that can they handle? We were watching Mythbusters, the duct tape edition the other night. Um, I think hadn't seen it 10 times already. And so he was wanting me to see it. And so they were building a duct tape suspension bridge. The first thing they did to figure out how to build a duct tape suspension bridge, they took one piece of duct tape and then they had this pressure gauge thing and, and, and they put pounds of pressure on it until it broke. They wanted to see what's the integrity of one piece of duct tape. How much pressure can it take before it breaks? 67 pounds, by the way, I think is what it took. You know, that's, that's pretty impressive. Okay. How easy is it for you to break? Okay, so you, if you're a believer here this morning and you, you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, how much pressure, you know, how much, how much outside peer pressure, how much struggle, how much disappointment, how much, how much re-education, how, how, much, how much of that can you take before you begin to drop your principles, before you begin to lay down who you are and begin to become somebody else? Daniel never breaks. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they never break. They, 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 by the power of Jesus Christ, I believe, they live in Babylon as shining lights to the glory of Jesus Christ. I want us to look at how does that happen? 
How's that happen? That's impressive. You guys don't look excited, but I'm excited about that because that is impressive to me that God can enable people to live out their faith in the worst of circumstances. It happens, first of all, by making godly resolves. I want you to notice verse 8. Verse 8 is a key verse. It says, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or the wine that he drank. Now, I want you to notice the word resolve. In the NIV, it says, uh, Daniel made up his mind, I believe. In the King James Version, I think it says, he purposed in his heart. But what's really interesting to me is that in the Hebrew, I looked this up, and I had to look it up like three times, because I thought, surely that's not right. In the Hebrew, the word is simply heart. It's the generic word in Hebrew, leb, for heart, okay? And so a literal translation might be Daniel hearted, okay? That he would not defile himself, okay? What, what, is, what is the connotation there? If the connotation is Daniel makes this uncompromising, settled determination about his life in his heart, okay? He makes a heart decision that says, this is my conviction. This is who I am. This is what I will not do. This is the line I'm drawing in the sand. These are my convictions about faith and about my life. And and I'm hearting. I'm, I'm resolving. I'm making up my mind that this is the way that I will live. Now, friends, you've got to do that if you're a believer. If you're going to make it, if you're going to last, if you're, if you're not going to break, then you've got to make some heart convictions about who you are and about how you'll live. And listen, those convictions need to be made on the front end. You don't wait until you're in the midst of the situation. You don't wait to see how things are going to turn out before you make those convictions. We always tell our teenagers, look, you don't wait until you're in a compromising situation. You don't wait until you're in the car or the country road with your your boyfriend or your girlfriend. And you know, you're just feeling all love struck. You don't wait till that moment to say, what do I believe about this? You know, how how far will I go? Man, that's stupid to wait. You got to decide now, who am I and how will I live? Jonathan Edwards was, I believe, one of the greatest theologians that America ever produced. He lived in the 1700s. He was a part of the first great awakening and revival in America. And by the age of 20, by the age of 20, Jonathan Edwards made 36 resolutions that he lived by for the rest of his life and that really shaped his ministry. Let me read you a couple of them. These are a couple that I just picked out. Number seven, resolve never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. That's a really cool one, I think. Have you ever thought about that? I'm not going to do anything that I wouldn't do if I knew I had 60 minutes to live. In 60 minutes, I'm going to meet Jesus. Should I go here? In 60 minutes, I'm going to meet Jesus. Should I watch this? In 60 minutes, I'm going to meet Jesus. Should I say that? That's, a, that's, that's pretty powerful right there. Let me just give you number 14, a really simple one. There, variety. Resolve never to do anything out of revenge. I think it's really wise to make some resolutions in your life. Where do you stand? How will you live? What will you do? Okay, Daniel draws those. Verse 8, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food. Now, now, now let, me, let me ask you this. Why that one, Daniel? Because this is interesting. You know, Daniel doesn't resolve. You know, it's, it's not like he, 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 he's, not, he's not willing to go to Babylon. I mean, he goes, right? I don't know that he had a choice, that or death probably, you know. But this is kind of this or death as well, you know. I mean, he, he goes through the education process. I mean, he submits to that. He goes through three years of learning the literature and the language and the customs of the, of the Chaldeans, of the Babylon, Babylonians. But why does he draw the line with food? 
I'm going to ask him someday in heaven. I don't know for sure. But I do know it probably has something to do with one of these, or maybe all of these. Number one, what it meant to be a, a, a Hebrew, an Israelite, of one of the people of God in the Old Testament, if you remember, was the food loss. Remember that? That was a big deal, okay? That was a big deal. In the New Testament, Jesus kind of changes that. He, he shows that was a shadow of what's to come. You're going to be set apart. You're going to be sanctified. But it's in a new way, okay? Remember Peter and the sheet and the whole deal in Acts? But in the Old Testament, it was a huge deal. That One of the ways you distinguished yourself as the people of God was by what you ate, okay? And, and so, so it could be that. Um, it could be, and I, I think this is a real possibility, that in this culture, food... Often, especially royal food, had been sacrificed to pagan gods. If you remember, 500 years later, they are still struggling with this in the New Testament. Remember that? Romans 14, 2 Corinthians 8. Those are all passages that deal with food sacrificed to idols. And Christians having to grapple with, should we eat this food? It was part of an idol ceremony. And so it very well could have been that the king's table was a place of idol worship. That there were, there were idol worship. These food was sacrificed to idols. And then the, then the worshipers would partake of the food from the table. And so it could have been... By participating in this kind of food and drink, Daniel would have been participating in idol worship. It could have been simply that food always has a social connotation. It could have been that Daniel said, you you bet, I'll learn the language, I'll do the job, I'll be educated, I'll do all of that, but I'm not going to adopt the lifestyle of the Babylonians. Have you noticed that food is always connected to who we are socially as a people? Have you noticed that? How many birthday parties have you went to and they said, sorry, no food? Have you, have you been to one, you know, presents, pinata, but inside the pinata was gravel, you know, and there was no food, you know, I mean, you haven't, you probably, you haven't been to one. How many times have you gone to Thanksgiving and mom said, hey, we're brown bagging it this year. Hey, we're not eating this year, you know. How many times have you went to a wedding reception, you know, and, and there was no cake, there was no mince, there was no nothing, you know, it was just, hey, no food today, no drink, we're fasting, you know, I mean. Food is always connected to a social environment. And in fact, when we go later into the book of Daniel, some of you remember this story. There's a feast in Babylon, right? There's a feast in Babylon. You remember that? And, and, and they bring out the, the, the goblets and the, and the utensils from the temple. And there's this whole immoral, just filthy setting that takes place there and God has enough and there's a finger that writes on the wall meaning meaning tickle you know you've been waiting the balances and found wanting this is it and the Persians come in and wipe them out that night and so we we see that from from the rest of the book of Daniel that this eating at the king's table probably involves some immorality possibly prostitution possibly temple worship probably just bad stuff was connected with with this environment now, some of you might be asking, I doubt any of you are, but, you know, I just thought, maybe you are, I don't know. But you might have been thinking, well, why the wine, okay? Because it says that he wouldn't defile himself with the king's food or with the, king, or with the wine that he drank. And if you've read your Old Testament, you know that there's nothing against drinking wine in the Old Testament. There's a lot against drunkenness in the Old Testament. But not, wine is not part of the food laws in the Old Testament. So, so why the wine? Well, again, it could be sacrifice to idols. It could be that whole thing. Or it could be when you see in the Old Testament people who are really serious about God and who are in times of great stress and trial, they would often make a Nazarite vow. Remember that? Remember Samson who blew it? But, you know, others made Nazarite vows. Even in the New Testament, Paul takes those guys to the temple and they've made a vow. And they won't drink wine. They'll, they'll only drink water. Could have been that. Could have been... Could have been that Daniel was setting the bar really high for himself and just wanting to be who God wanted him to be. 
But here's the important thing I want you to see. For whatever reason, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself. You see that word defile? It's an important word. It, It simply means to pollute, to make unclean, to live in a way that dishonors God. Daniel made a resolution for purity. Let's make sure we get this right, okay? How do you get pure, my friends? I think you know this if you've been here. How do you get pure? The only way you get a pure heart is by being connected to Jesus Christ, right? We don't get a pure heart by, here's 10 things to do, okay? Don't eat this, do eat this, go, don't go here, do go here. You know, don't wear this, do wear that. You know, now you're pure. No, that's not the way it works, is it? We are broken sinners, and the only way we become pure is by being connected to Jesus Christ in a faith relationship, right? Where we get his righteousness. However, what we also know is that as we are made righteous, we are to live out that righteousness in very practical ways. And so when we think about not being defiled, we think, how do I live out what God has put in me? How do I live out the righteousness of Jesus in my everyday life? Now, one of the big questions this morning is, what are your resolutions? What, what, do you, what have you made up your mind about? What lines have you drawn in your life? The scary thing is for you to say none. I don't know, I just do whatever, you know, whatever the neighbor does, that's what I do. That's a scary deal as a Christian, okay? I mean... Hopefully, you've, you've, hopefully you have some convictions already. Hopefully you've drawn some lines. Hopefully you've said, we are the people of God and this is the way that we'll live. Okay? But, but, but let me ask you this question. How do you draw those lines? Let me give you two things that I think will be really helpful. Number one, you have something Daniel didn't. You have 66 books in your Bible. Okay? You have an entire New Testament and you have the example of Jesus Christ. All right? So that you can open up... Your, your Bible, your New Testament especially, and you can say, what, what defiles me as a Christian? Well, let me give you some verses. Matthew fifteen eleven, Jesus says this, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Listen, if you haven't made some resolutions about what will come out of your mouth, that's, that's, that's one place to start. James chapter 3, verse 6 reinforces that. It says, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining. You see that word staining? It's a word that means defile. It's a word that means pollute. Staining the whole body, setting on fire the course of life. I mean, one of the places to start is you need to make some resolutions about what will come out of my mouth. What will I say? What will I not say? What will I not let my lips utter? Okay, those are some things that you ought to make some some determined resolutions, some lines in the sand about. Another big one in the New Testament is sexual immorality. Second Peter two ten talks about the lust of defiling passion. Romans one twenty four says the lust of their hearts that defile their bodies. As far as sexual immorality, Second Corinthians twelve twenty one talks about sexual immorality as a defiling thing. Ephesians five three and five, Colossians three five. Let, let me go through with you. First Thessalonians four. I met with some guys, I met with guys every morning, or most mornings during the week, and uh, we, we went through this passage in one of my groups, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Sanctification is a word that means to be made pure, to be made holy, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because, and this is a frightening phrase, my friends, the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity. 
See that word impurity? That's a word very similar to the word defiled. But God's not called us to, to impurity, but in holiness. Now, let me just give you a hodgepodge, all right? You can just open up to Galatians 5. Where should I draw my lines? Galatians five nineteen. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Again, how are we made holy? We are made holy by the blood of Jesus Christ. How do we live out that holiness? We live it out in practical resolves in which we determine this is who I am. And by the power of Jesus Christ, I will live a certain way. That's what Daniel's doing. So how should you draw your lines? Number one, you should draw them by the word of God. Number two, you should draw them by conscience. God's given you a conscience. God's given you a little mechanism inside of you that says yes and no, right and wrong, dangerous and okay. God's God's given you that. And you need to use that. Now, what bothers people is not everybody's conscience is the same. That just... I'll tell you, there's some Christians that that eats them alive, all right? They can't stand it. If they could, they would reach down your throat and rewire your conscience, if they could do it, all right, without killing you. They would do it because it bothers them deeply that your conscience is not their conscience. Paul actually gives us a bunch of, of instruction about this in the New Testament. Let me read you one particular passage, 1 Corinthians 8, 7. Um, He's talking about food here again. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience being weak is defiled. Same word, defiled. Okay, so what Paul is telling us is you should not defile your conscience. If something, as you look at the scriptures and as you pray about something and as you look at your family, if you have a certain conviction about something, you should live that out. You shouldn't go against that. You say, but yeah, but my, my, my friend at church, they're a good Christian and they don't have the same conviction. Well, I don't care. God's given you a conscience and you should use that conscience, right? And there's all kinds of things that fall into this category. And you're going to find also that your conscience develops, okay? If you are, if you are deeply reading the word of God and if you're, 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 you're in fellowship with God in prayer, that there are going to be things that five years ago didn't bother you, but now they bother you. Now they bother your conscience. Hey, listen. Listen to that. But probably there's also going to be things that five years ago did bother you. And now you're like, eh, I, I can love Jesus and do that to the glory of God. That's probably going to happen. Your, your conscience is probably going to develop. But you need to listen to your conscience. And there's just a ton of things that are in this category, aren't there? I mean, what do you watch? What do you listen to? What do you wear? You know, what do you drive? Um, how much is too much to spend on something? Um, this week's Halloween, right? Halloween is one of those areas that, that Christians are really divided. There's some Christians that they believe if you dress up, you know, if you put on your clown costume, be ready. You're going to burn the next day. Hell, you know, God's going to take you. He's going to judge you. Um, I, mean, I mean, really, there's some Christians that are really serious about that. And listen, you know what I tell those Christians? I had one in my office this week. You need to, you need to do exactly what your conscience is telling you. You know, if this bothers you, you should not, you should not do that. You should not go there. Other Christians don't seem to bother. They have a much looser view on it. Um, I, again, the Word of God should shape your thinking First and foremost, if it's in the word of God, you need to obey the word of God completely. But then there's other areas that are gray. You need to use your conscience. But listen, in both those ways, you got to draw some lines. Here's some encouragement. As you live out your life in purity and holiness, God is going to use you. Okay? God's going to use you. That's a really cool thing. You know what you see about Daniel? Daniel? Man, God uses this guy. Powerful, monumental, 
world-changing ways. And that's what we see in the rest of the Bible. God uses those who don't defile themselves. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3 through 8. I'm not going to read all this, but there's a scene of heaven. And Isaiah sees the glory of God and the throne of God and the cherubim and the seraphim. And singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And and in verse 5, he says, woe is me, I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And in verse 6, a seraphim comes from the altar with a burning coal and cleanses, touches his lips and makes him clean. God makes him clean. And in verse 8, he says, the Lord says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. I do not think it's coincidence that Isaiah goes from being unclean to clean. The Lord says, who will I send? Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And God sends him. God sends the pure. God sends the clean. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, this is a really clear passage. Verse 20, he says, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, also of wood and hay, clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Who does God look for? God looks for a clean vessel. Hear that? God looks for a clean vessel. So, we need to make some resolves, do we not? To the best of our ability, as we look at the scriptures, as we think of our conscience, we need to say, this is who I am, and this is what I resolve. Now, those of you who have lived very long, who've lived through very many new years, you know that January 10th is a big day. January 10th is the day in which we all realize that resolves without action are absolutely worthless, right? I mean, we've seen that. We've seen people make incredible resolves that they're going to lose some weight, and they're going to get healthy, and they're going to, they buy those shakes online, and... You know, they're going to give up their cheeseburgers. But listen, if you never do any action, your resolve is empty. I want you to notice in verse 8, Daniel resolves that he'll not defile himself. At the end of verse 8, there's some crucial words here. Therefore, he asks. He goes and does something about it. And he does something about it that's risky, that is courageous. And he does something quickly. Listen, to not... To make a resolve and then take no action is really empty, okay? And there are a lot of people that make great resolves, but you know what happens? They wait to see what everybody else will do. They wait to see if they'll be put in the situation. They wait to see if if they'll really have to decide. And they end up compromising because they wait. But Daniel immediately makes a, a resolution and acts upon the resolution. And he does so with persistence. Do you see that? This deal doesn't go well at first. Verse 10, the chief of the eunuchs says, look, I fear the Lord my king. This is a bad idea. You're going to endanger my own head. You know what Daniel does? Daniel comes back with another plan. He may even come back to a different guy. It's, it's a little tricky how you read those verses. It says, Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned. To, it, could be, it could be he's going to the same guy. It could be he goes to a different guy. We're not sure. But you know what Daniel does? He does not give up. It didn't go well the first time. Daniel doesn't give up. He doesn't say, well, I tried. No, he says, this is who I am. This is how I'm going to live. And he goes with persistence. Now notice also, Daniel acts with wisdom and grace. Do you see that? Friends, this is important. Because there, there, there's, there's almost two types of people in the Christian church. There's people who have strong resolves and there's people who don't. And you know what we find too, far too often? The people with strong resolves lack wisdom and grace. And the people that have wisdom and grace lack strong resolves. We, we need both. Okay? 
You, you know what some folks would have done? Some folks, if they were Daniel, they would have had this strong conviction. And you know what they would have done? They would have knocked on the chiefs of the eunuch's office. Come on in. They'd have come in and they'd have said, you're an idiot, okay? You are an idiot. I mean, you're a pagan. You've got no clue about who the real God is. And guess what? My God's going to come in. He's going to slaughter you. He's going to slaughter your nation. This whole place is going to be nothing but rubble. And the snakes and the rats are going to live here the rest of eternity. And nothing will ever be rebuilt here. Which is exactly true. That's what happened, okay? You notice that Daniel doesn't do that? Some of you are just like that, aren't you? You're laughing because that's you, you know? You got strong convictions. And, and, and so what you're going to do is you're going you're gonna to pound everybody, you know? You're the guy that walked into your college professor's class and said, Hey, dude, I know you got a doctor's degree, but you're an idiot, all right? I mean, you said that, right? Uh, you, you, you were that guy. You were that gal. Can I say this? If you're a person of strong conviction, we need you. We need you. And, and, and we need you to act with wisdom and grace because that's what gets things done. You notice how Daniel does this? It's beautiful. He goes to this first guy. Hey, you know, here's what I like to do. Here, here's, here's my conviction. I can't move from it. The guy's like, it's a bad idea. Don't bother me. He goes either to the second guy or he goes back. And, and, and he, notice, notice what he says. Test, test your servant. Test me. Test me. You know, when you do that, my friends, you know what happens? The power of God is engaged. There, there's some cool words. Okay, you got your Bible? Okay, here, here's words that I underlined in red in my Bible. Verse 9, God gave. Verse 17, as for these four yous, God gave. You, you know why that's so significant? Verse 8, Daniel resolves, then he acts. And then verse 9, God gives. Verse 17, God gives. It's a faith thing, isn't it? It's hard to act according to your convictions. It's it's hard to tell your family, hey, this is who I am and, and this is who God made me. And, and, and I got to live this way and I got to have these strong convictions and, and I can't budge. And, and it's hard in the relationship to say, look, this is how it's got to be. And this is how it's got to be in our marriage. And, and, and we're going to be these kind of people. Those are hard things. And, and you're liable to be ridiculed and you're liable to lose your place on the team and, and to have a relationship that's broken off and to not get the promotion and not be the popular popular kid. But listen, you got to trust God's going to give. Okay. God's going to act. His power is going to be engaged in your life. And then, you know what Daniel does? Daniel takes a watch me approach. Verse 12, test your servants. Okay. The end of verse 13, act according to what you see. I underlined what you see in my Bible. That's beautiful. Well, you, you know what Daniel's saying? He said, hey, let me live out my faith and then you watch my life. You watch and see what God does. You watch and see how this works out. You see, sometimes we have strong convictions. We, we don't have a watch me approach. We have a, I'm watching you, right? I got these convictions. I'm watching you. Man, you know what's much more powerful? Watch me. Watch me. Hey, listen, if you're a Christian, you don't have any room to have this whole, hey, don't judge me. Hey, uh, don't watch my life. Mind your own business. You ever hear that? If you're a Christian, your life needs to be on display. It needs to be on display. People need to be able to watch it. You, you should want them to watch. You know why you should want them to watch it? Because you're connected to Jesus. Isn't that awesome? 
You're connected to Jesus. The Holy Spirit lives in you. Jesus is working through you. You ought to want people to see Jesus. You ought to want them to see Jesus' character and Jesus' power and Jesus' love and Jesus' might. So let them see that. And, and Daniel is willing to say, hey, watch my life. I'm going to eat all vegetables. Watch me. See if I'm not better. Now, now, please don't go. Please don't go here that vegetables are better than, than meat. You know why I don't want you to go there? That takes all the power out of this passage. Then it's just like Daniel was smarter about his nutrition, you know? Oh, here's what I want you to see. This is the power of God. You see that? God gave Daniel favor. God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. This is God. God is, these guys are stepping out in faith and the power of God is flowing into them. Man, won't the same be true of you? If you step out in faith and follow your convictions, won't God's power flow into your life and supernatural things will happen? That's what we want. We want God to shine through us. Now, when you look at guys like Daniel, you look at guys like Joseph, same, same category of guys. They're, they're thrust into the worst possible situations. Joseph, his family betrays him. He's thrust into servanthood in a wicked house with a wicked woman. Things don't go well from there. He goes, it gets worse. He's thrust into prison, an Egyptian prison. Daniel, thrust into the palace of a wicked king. You know what these guys don't do? These guys don't roll over and play dead. Okay? They, they, you know what they don't do? They don't, well, you know, it's terrible. I'm mad at God. God's not giving me what I wanted. I wanted to run the dealership with dad in Jerusalem, and now it's all over. No, no, no. Man, they, they don't get bitter. They don't pout. They, they trust God. They make strong resolutions about who they are, and they trust God's power, and they end up shining incredibly beautifully for Jesus. Look at the last verse in chapter 1. Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. That's an awesome verse. You know why that's an awesome verse? Because when you open up your Bibles to Ezra chapter 1, you know what you see? In the first year of King Cyrus, you see that phrase. You know what happens? Cyrus, the Persian, wipes out. The Persians wiped out Babylon. And then Cyrus, you know what he says? He says, why are all you Israelites here? Y'all go home. Go home. And then later on, even better, Nehemiah. Nehemiah goes to the, the Persian king and says, hey, can we rebuild our wall? The guy's like, not only can you rebuild it, but I'll fund it. Amazing things. You, you know why verse 21 ends there? It wants you to know Daniel made it all the way to the end. The Israelites were, were thrust into this horrific situation. And for 80 years, 70 years of exile... Daniel was one of the first, so probably 10 years, for 80-some years, Daniel shined as a light in Babylon and then in Persia. And he got to see his people return back home. What a great picture for us. We're not home, are we? We're kind of in exile. That's the way the Bible says it. We're living in an environment that's not real conducive to being a Christian. But you know what? If you will make some godly resolves, if you will step out in faith, if you will trust the power of God to come into your life, God will enable you to live to the end. To live strong for Him to the end. You'll see the new Jerusalem coming, won't you?
Let's pray. God, I ask you to help us. God, help us to be faithful. God, help us to to have strong convictions. God, I, I'm really convicted, God, that we we need we need to be stronger in our resolves about who we are and about how we'll live and about what we won't do, what we will do. God, help us to do that. And Lord, at the same time, God, help us to, to live that way in a, in a gracious and a wise spirit. God, help us to be able to have a, have a life that people can watch and they can see your power and your grace and your, your glory in our lives. God, we pray for your power. God, we ask it in Jesus' name.